0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: It's been a big day in politics in Victoria. After nine years as Premier, Daniel Andrews finished at close of business today. It looked like the sun would set with no word of who would be the next Labour Premier of Victoria – but at 20 to 4 Melbourne time, Jacinta Allen was elected the 49th Premier of Victoria and she was elected unopposed. A move warmly welcomed by sale resident Gary Veal. Now bring on another female. We had
2: uh, Joan Kerner, she done all right. Why not? I reckon it'll make a difference.
1: After nine years at the helm... What will Daniel Andrews' legacy be in regional Australia? We're going to take a look at that. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk country, Perth. There's nothing quite like the feeling of finishing work. Pouring a cuppa or grabbing a cold one from the fridge... The joy of putting a day's work behind you, so you can only imagine how Daniel Andrews is feeling right now. After nine years as the Victorian Premier this evening, he hung off the boots and is a free agent. During his time as Premier, he faced his fair share of challenges, from the black summer bushfires to the outbreak of COVID-19, the end of native timber logging and, of course, canning the Commonwealth Games in July this year.
3: I've been Premier for nine years and the leader of my party for 13 years is a greater set of opportunities than I ever thought would be afforded to me. A kid from the country with only really an aspiration to do good, to work hard, to work with teams of people to perhaps make things better.
1: Daniel Andrews, as you heard, describes himself as a kid from the country. But what will his legacy be in regional Victoria? To talk about that, I'm joined by our reporter in sale, Millie Spencer. Now Millie, before we talk about the Andrews legacy, we have to talk about the latest news because caucus has met. There's been lots of moving parts today. But what do we know about the new Premier, Jacinta Allen?
2: It has been a huge day, Sinead. We started the day thinking that Jacinta Allen was a very clear front runner in the race for Premiership. But then it emerged at about 11 o'clock that there was someone else throwing their hand up and that was Ben Carroll. Now Ben Carroll is from the right faction of the Labor Party. He's currently the member for Nidri, which is a metro electorate northwest of Melbourne. It then meant that there was a potential challenge to the premiership. So like you mentioned, there was meant to be a caucus meeting at 12 noon, but actually that meeting was delayed over an hour. So the premier didn't enter the caucus room in Spring Street until quarter past one. We think at this stage that was due to ongoing negotiations between the left and right factions about who would take the top job. It emerged Jacinta Allen would be the 49th Premier of Victoria and Ben Carroll would take on the Deputy Premiership.
1: Now Millie, tell me about Jacinta Allen herself. What do we know about her?
2: Yeah, so Jacinta Allen took over the Deputy Premiership from James Molino in 2020. Uh, She's going to be the second female premier for Victoria. Um, We had a a female premier in Victoria in 1990 to 1992. That was Joan Kerner. So another really important thing is uh, Jacinta Allen is the member for Bendigo East. So she's going to be a regional premier. Um, Currently, she's the minister for infrastructure and the suburban rail loop. So in Victoria, she's in charge of some pretty big Portfolios. We're going through a real um, stage of upgrading our infrastructure and also going through a big uh, upgrade to the suburban rail loop. I suppose another thing to note is Jacinta was born and raised in regional Victoria. She grew up in Bendigo. She studied at uh, the local primary school in Quarry Hill. She then went to the Catholic College in Bendigo before completing her Bachelor of Arts at La Trobe University in Bendigo. She's also the second youngest woman to ever serve as a deputy Premier when she was unanimously endorsed by the party last year. That's when she took over from James Molino. And she was also the youngest female MP to be elected in 1999. She was elected at the age of 25. She then went on to be the youngest minister in the history of the state in 2002 when she, yeah, when she served as a minister. So she's, um, been around for, for a long time, but has really broken some boundaries, um, around being a young MP and also, only, and also being the second female Premier now.
1: Certainly. Now, Daniel Andrews himself was always keen to play up his regional connections because he too um, grew up in the bush and he made many decisions that had direct effect on regional Victoria during his time as Premier, some, some favourably, some not so favourably. How, how do you think he'll be remembered by people in regional and rural Victoria?
2: He did indeed, Sinead, he did play up those regional routes. He was schooled in Wangaratta. But to be honest, uh, to know whether those regional roots were strong enough to keep people in the region, it is debatable. I actually popped down to our local shopping mall here in Sale today just to chat to some locals about how they were feeling. It is important to note that in Gippsland, we have a national stronghold. So, So here's a bit of what our local people had to say.
1: Fantastic, good riddance Lockdowns, children parks closed No boating, you name it Close the Olympics for a r- rule what, what happened to that? And how much money he, he's wasted on that Just by cancelling it He's just wasting our taxpayers' money Like it was his own But it's not his, it's our money
3: It's too many
1: mistakes Like with the Commonwealth Games The blowouts with the rail And
2: all the hospital systems in turmoil And people are homeless so he hasn't done a lot. I mean, he might have done a couple of good things along the way, like the sister dying. That's great. But the majority of it, it's a big mess.
3: I like more done for regional Victoria, because we are also part of the membership of Victoria. So things like fixing our train lines, more uh, more community things outside of Melbourne, like less money is spent out here. And yeah, we're facing it. Like, like Melbourne's got most of the train changes. Jobs should have been the
0: top priority. I don't think they've been as effective as they could have been. There's a lot of money spent, but that money was spent on aquatic centres, basketball stadiums, performing arts centres, those kind of things. And I think the, the idea was, as you stated, to lift the spirits of the community when we are in real trouble, when Hazelwood went and we started to go downhill. That's not a bad idea, but the first thing to solve the problems of the valley, uh, to create new jobs.
1: It's fair to say, Millie, there wasn't a lot of love there for Daniel Andrews. But let's look at some of the decisions because some of those punters did tap into some of the decisions that were made by the the Andrews government. So one of them being the fallout from the end of the native timber logging. And this will be inherited by Jacinta Allen. Tell me about that decision and the effect on those communities.
2: Yes, there's been a lot of anger from regional communities around the closure of the native timber logging Uh, in 2019, just months before black summer and bushfires, as well as the outbreak of COVID-19. The premier told Victorians native timber logging would end by 2023. But he quickly fast-tracked that deadline to seven years, so that brings the closure of the industry to this year. Now, look, there were a number of reasons that native timber was, was brought forward or the deadline of native timber was brought forward, mainly because of a Supreme Court decision that took place late last year. It found that the state's timber company, Vic Forest, was guilty of breaking the law by failing to adequately protect two endangered species in our forests here. Yeah. So it meant that the decision to end native timber had to be brought forward by seven years. I've actually just got back from a trip from Orbost myself, which is one of our main timber communities here in the state. And I heard from multiple locals that they just feel they've been left behind by the government. They felt that they were working to the deadline of 2030 and the decision to bring forward the closure of the industry really came out of the blue and has left them in the dark about their future.
1: Millie, an- another aspect of, of the Andrews government, of course, was having to negotiate COVID-19 and the restrictions that came with that. Most people listening would be aware of the brutal shutdowns that were experienced by people living in Victoria. But, but what about the scars that were left on regional, regional Victoria? What have people got to say about that?
2: The ABC's heard from plenty of regional Victorians over the last few years, both during COVID and after COVID, and we've heard that it was a really rough time for those living in the regions. Here in Victoria, the government put up a ring of steel, which meant people in metropolitan areas couldn't come into regional Victoria. Um, Look, that had a mixed response. It was really hard for hospitality businesses because they lost a lot of international business during COVID, but they also lost a lot of local business when that ring of steel went up. But then other business owners like gyms and cinemas remained open during that time because the regions were free of COVID. Uh, so it became quite Hunger Games-esque uh, right. <laughs> through that time. Um, you know, the, the police were staffing highway checkpoints and regional business owners uh, had quite a lot of responsibility put on them. They actually had to check IDs of patrons who were dining in their restaurants. So those in hospitality had a mix reaction to the lockdowns. Meetong hotel owner David Strange actually said he felt the Premier could have kept regional Victoria open for longer. Here's what he had to say.
4: Oh, it was really tough because we didn't know what the next day would bring. I felt that in regional Victoria, he could have been a little bit more open. Um, We were a long way away from COVID at the time. And, you know, to impose sort of the dense population rules on such a vast population in regional Victoria just wasn't necessary. The pub tests I hear every day, um, you know, everyone talks against him. And I guess his personality doesn't lend you to feel in love with the man. He is very domineering in how he speaks.
1: Meetong Hotel owner David Strange there. Now, this year in July, there was the shock announcement that the Commonwealth Games that was planned for 2026 would not be hosted by Victoria, which was a big deal for communities in regional Victoria because a number of those games were, were meant to be held in regional communities. Has, but alongside that, the Andrews government gave extra regional funding for housing and tourism. Has that healed those wounds at all?
2: I don't think it's a clear-cut answer, Sinead. On the ground, people are still very disappointed. Communities were really looking forward to having the Games brought into Geelong, Bendigo, Ballarat and Gippsland. We spoke to a number of people from sporting clubs across the region and the overall feeling was people are still feeling pretty gutted. However, when we go and talk to other members of the community, like those working in regional housing, the the response is much more positive because uh, the funds from the the Commonwealth game are actually being redirected into what the government calls legacy projects. So there'll be $2 billion put towards regional Victoria uh, with a $1 billion of that uh, dedicated to regional housing. Um, and the aim is to build 1,300 new homes across the region. So like I said, it's something that regional housing charities really welcomed. Uh, tourism operators too welcomed uh, the $150 million, which will be put towards an event event and tourism fund. So it's probably not a clear cut answer for you Sinead, but Mm. I think it reflects really the division on the ground uh, between the Commonwealth Games and the legacy that these projects will leave.
1: What about something positive? One of these announcements was the cut to regional public transport fares this year. Is that something we can leave, you know, as a positive reflection of that time?
2: Absolutely. V-Line fares were capped in line with Metropolitan Melbourne. So initially we saw fees uh, capped at $9.20 for a full fare or $4.60 for a concession fare. A few months later, those fees increased to $10 for a full fare and $5 for a concession. That's just in line with Metropolitan Melbourne. But yeah, you're right. It it, it was a huge saving for regional Victorians having those fees put in line with their Metropolitan counterparts.
1: Spencer in Sale. Thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. Thanks, Sinead. Three years after construction finished on the most expensive high-rise development in Queensland's history, hundreds of its luxury beachfront apartments remain empty, and most of them are not for sale. The $1.5 billion jewel development on the Gold Coast has 340 units, but only a quarter have been sold, and most of the tower is sitting empty during a housing crisis. Our reporter Mackenzie Collahan has the details.
5: Jewel's eye-catching towers are the sparkling gem on the Surfer's Paradise skyline. Its three towers were finished in 2020, but to many on the Gold Coast, the project remains a mystery. International hotel group The Langham independently manages the middle tower as holiday accommodation. The north and south towers contain private residential apartments, but more than two-thirds have not been put to market. The south tower is empty its units do not have titles and have never been listed for sale. Chinese-backed developer AW Holding Group recently released another 30, 1, 2 and 3 bedroom apartments, ranging in price from $900,000 to $6.5 million, all in the North Tower, where 88 units have previously been sold. Amid enormous interstate and international interest that has been fueling a Gold Coast property boom, the majority of new apartments in the region are typically purchased off the plan and often sell out months or even even years before construction starts, but that has not been the case for the jewel, content to slowly drip-feed its stock onto the market as real estate prices continue to climb. Total Property Group director Adrian Parsons, who manages the jewel's sales campaign, said its foreign owners had a strategic view to the property's value and were in no hurry to sell. The owner's position is that they want to uh, maximise the value of their asset They're certainly in no hurry to sell it off. We do know also that there is uh, a lot of developments that are not going ahead in the market, so there is no um, desire to rush to sell these properties off. The project's staggered release has raised questions about the ethics of deliberately withholding properties from the market during the state's housing crisis. Queensland Housing Minister Megan Scanlon disagreed that high-end real estate had no impact on overall housing availability. Our data suggests that Uh, supply is the critical issue. Everyone in Queensland wants to see more housing supply and I think if you know it would be great to see developers do the right thing now of course we want to see increased supply of social and affordable housing but we also want to see increased supply of uh, any type of housing because it adds more options to the market for people to be able to purchase or to rent my message to any developer is if you have housing we would encourage you to make sure that that is added to the supply that we need right now the go slow strategy has confounded property experts David Higgins, Colliers International Director of Residential Project Sales for the Gold Coast and Brisbane, said it was unheard of for a development of the jewel size to be financed without pre-sales. Mr Higgins said overheads, including interest repayments, council rates and maintenance costs would be astronomical, not to mention the opportunity cost, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars a week in lost rental income.
4: Cleaning, maintaining, security, um, that is also very expensive, so it would be an incredibly high cost to maintain an A-grade building on the beachfront in today's environment. If they're not selling, or they're not selling enough, or not selling quickly enough, generally we come back to price being a reason. If the project was well-priced and the developers were serious, there is very good demand for that type of product.
5: Despite the suggestion the jewel was overpriced, it seems to have no problem selling. The first 70 apartments, released in stages 1 and 2 since last December, sold for a combined $140 million, primarily to Queensland buyers. Mr Parsons said his team was undertaking 100 inspections each week. He expects the latest 30 apartments will sell out in just two months, and some units in the South Tower will go on sale in December or January. The release of the apartments we have, matches market demand so we are very conscious that we make enough properties available for people that are looking to buy. We definitely have a housing crisis on the Gold Coast where there's not enough affordable accommodation offered and I I clearly think you wouldn't put this in the affordable home category. Mr Higgins said the sale of more dual apartments would have a flow on effect as downsizers moved into the complex and vacated their family homes.
4: We as an industry We're so starved of supply because there's so many projects that aren't proceeding because they're unable to get a builder, they're unable to get the construction feasibility to work for their banks. People may be coming out of homes and going into beachfront apartments as they get more mature, but that does free up other housing stocks. So we do believe there is a very positive story in the run-on effect that people can buy and move into it. Yes, it is expensive. Yes, it is premium, but it also does free up other real estate when those people move from one residence to buy something like this.
1: Mackenzie Collaghan reporting there from the Gold Coast in Queensland. The oldest among us may remember life during World War II, but even amid the fear and loss that comes with years of global conflict, people were still falling in love. It's estimated that over the course of the Second World War, between 12,000 to 15,000 Australian women married American servicemen. Just south of Cairns, our reporter Amanda Cranston met with two of these women, both in their 90s now and still living locally, who married during the war. Hilda Russell remembers the first time she met her husband.
3: It was 1943 and we used to run Saturday night dances at the CWA Hall at Deer ral and paratroopers would come out in truckloads from their encampment at Gordonville. And how old were you at the time? 16. Your mum ran those dances. What were they like? What sorts of dances did you do when you all got Ma- together? Mainly old time. And there was a family called Rodolfi. They had an orchestra and they would be the band who would come out and play at the dances. It was the highlight of the week. There was nothing else. We were all on cane farms out there. How early on did you meet your husband and was it love at first sight? Oh, no. There was four of them that were mates and we just sort of all used to meet on weekends. They'd come out. We had a big swimming hole at Fig Tree Creek where that was the only communal place really. We'd all meet at the swimming hole. How long did you go out with Price before he asked for your hand in marriage? He went to New Guinea in August. So he talked to Dad before he left. Dad said yes as long as he came back here. No way was I going over there. Price was quite happy to come and settle in Australia. He liked it. We were married in Babinda. I had a, a lovely wedding gown borrowed from a cousin in Brisbane. She had married her fiancé about six months before, so she loaned me her wedding dress. Did you have wedding photos taken on the day? No, (laughs) no films. No one owned a camera because we couldn't get film. My brother drove Price and I into Cairns after the wedding. We had a room at the Railway Hotel, spent the weekend there. And on Monday, my parents turned up with the bridesmaid and flower girl and my wedding frock. And we got dressed. When I came down the stairs, everyone just stared at us because they knew we'd been there for the weekend. But we could only take two photos, one of the group and one of just Price and I.
0: I'm meeting Martin and I'll be 99 on the 3rd of October. Tell me how you met your first husband. I went to the movies. On the way home, that Ray Lyons said to me, do you mind if I take you again to the movies? And I said, yeah, it'll be all right. He said, I don't even know you. He said, oh, we just met. What do I do know of you, I've taken a liking to you. And I said, oh, I was honest. I said, well, the only reason I've come out tonight with you is because my mother's so strict. We met in February. They just arrived in February and we got engaged in May and married on the 14th of August 1943. We got married at the sad day. We couldn't go away anywhere because he had to be in camp the next day. And the American army picked him up and they flew early in the morning up to New Guinea. But about three weeks later, there was somebody knocking at the door and I could hear my father saying, where did you come from? What are you doing here? And it was Ray Lyons. He'd come AWL, him and two others. And he was away about a week and a half here. Dad talked him into giving himself up because we weren't getting any sleep you had the opportunity to go over so there were war brideships and a lot of brides were going over to america to be with
3: their husbands how old was your daughter ray when you and
0: her headed down to brisbane six or seven months old this is 1945 it would have been on the train ride there was a girl verla huey she had married a paratrooper she had a little boy the same age and she's the breeze and I come home. Verla crying her eyes out. I started to cry, I do as a lot of others crying too. Verla was saying, I'm not going, I want to stay in Australia. I might never come back here <laughs> And she got up crying and grabbed the boy and she went down to the bus driver, Let me out, I'm not going. The driver wasn't too bloody happy. And then I decided I'm not getting on the boat either. We made him unload all our stuff off. They sent us back up north here on the next day. I didn't bother getting the doors until 1950 when I met Frank, my late husband. Frank and I really did have a wonderful marriage.
1: That was Edie Martinod there and before that we heard Hilda Russell both reflecting on their marriages to American paratroopers during World War II. What great memories they have and I hope Edie has a lovely birthday in a few days' time. Thanks to Far North Queensland reporter Amanda Cranston for that really lovely piece. And that is Australia Wide for this Wednesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio.
5: ABC Listen.